Good morning and welcome to Radio Veritas. This is the Jesuit Institute Hour and my name is Francis Correa and myself and Pamela Masinga are going to be with you for the rest of this hour. Today we've got two slightly different things lined up. We're going to begin by talking to Father Anthony Egan a little bit about Concord, considering the secret ballot and what that means and just bringing to bear on that some of the insights of Catholic social teaching. And then Pam, who's new to the Institute, is going to actually chat to me about the other hat that I wear in the work that I do. And we're going to have a bit of a chat about the work that I do as a formator of spiritual directors, my work as a spiritual director. And she's going to uh, hopefully ask me some questions that will help all of you to understand a bit of the other side of the work of the Institute. So that's what we're going to line up for today. So, Anthony, I think the two big things that are kind of, at least in my mind at the moment, the one is Brian Malefe coming back to ESCOM and and what does that mean and what are the implications about how we think about the public protector and and the role of the public protector and, and all of that in, in the wake of this and just your thoughts on that matter. Mm, well, I, th- I think it's a case of games being played and different factions jockeying for position and in a sense it's it's a setback for those who would like to see cleaner governance and more accountable governance. And I think that is the primary thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I fear the role of the public protector has changed substantially in the last year or so. Uh-huh. Um, I think it's become less uh, dependent than it was, less uh, critical, less willing to, you know, face head on the kind of tasks and questions that it was created for in the, by the Constitution and by the whole Chapter 9 um, system that has been you know, introduced by the Constitution. Hmm. I just, I mean, and, and what do you think, if you think about, if you think about that happening, Anthony, what does, you know, what would the Church want to say into that? Um, and I mean... Well, yeah, I don't know. I think I think the church's primary role would be to say that you know the public protector should do their job. Uh, that you know, in a sense, that government is is supposed to be clean and and ordered and organised and proper, and that one would suspect that there is a, is a sort of failure, shall we say, on the part of the public protector's office and a backtracking from where we were, say, a year, a year and a bit ago. Right. And I think the church would say, you know, we should, you know, we must hold our public officials to account and that something like the public protector's office should not be used as a, as a sort of political tool hmm. uh, to favor sort of some or other parts of of government or of indeed uh, ruling parties hmm. I just wonder you know I'm, I'm, I'm often struck that that there are kind of levels of discourse levels of conversation in the country and that mm-hmm. that it might be helpful just to 
tease out a little bit for an ordinary person, for a grandmother who's supporting kids on a child grant, what is the significance of what's going on in terms of the, the role of the public protector being undermined? Well, in a sense, the public protector is there to protect the public, literally, from any kind of abuses of government and, any, and to investigate any possible um, you know, mismanagement, for example, of public monies for purposes other than that they've been earmarked for. And in that sense, I mean, insofar as one sort of undermines an institution like the public protector, which basically has become toothless and may even be captured, to use a phrase that's often used, uh, all it's doing is simply uh, taking the chances of public resources that are earmarked for public good uh, and, and, and just letting it disappear mm. uh, rather than holding you know, the government, the administration, public services and such like to account. Mm. And that is a real problem because, in a sense, it means essentially that people who are poor uh, and who need public grants and public welfare uh, may find themselves once again being on the receiving end uh, of not getting what they've been promised. Yeah. Let's think a little bit about what's been going on in the Constitutional Court and the, 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 the movement to have a secret ballot and... Mm -hmm. I hadn't realized that this would bring up quite so many issues for the court itself to think about it. But just if you could just tease out a little bit about why this is why this is a problematic issue to have brought to, brought to the court, perhaps in the first place, and, and what the implications might be. Well, it's problematic in the sense that there's very little uh, in the Constitution about a secret ballot in Parliament. Um, is, I don't think it's even mentioned what kind of ballot is needed. To mean then that the court is being asked to decide rather than rule in terms of what the Constitution says. Uh, so it's not so much interpreting the Constitution, but in a sense almost making law right. about another section of government. And that is a very difficult thing because it sort of blurs the boundaries once again between... Uh, the legislature and the judiciary. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a sense, the role of the judiciary, as it's really the con court, is to see that the Constitution is upheld. If, some, if there's nothing in the Constitution about it, then, in a sense, the con court has, then has to you know, either decide not to hear the case, or they have, or to simply refuse to make a judgment, or make some kind of vague judgment which may or may not have any weight. Mm -hmm. Uh, because you see, the most they can say, I think, is that uh, in absence of any law forbidding a secret ballot in Parliament, um, it is possible to have a secret ballot in Parliament. But all that I think all they can probably say is it is possible for uh, the Speaker to make it a secret ballot. In a sense, throw back the... Uh, the ball into the speaker's hands, because in, in, and that, that's a kind of legal issue. But then there's a broader political issue going on. Um, 
actually says is that some parties in Parliament no longer have faith in Parliament. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's saying basically the courts must decide how Parliament must act is essentially what they are, are asking. And that is, that is a vote of no confidence on the part of opposition parties. Uh, and so that, that's a rather unfortunate um, statement to make. I mean, which is just the only way you can interpret that decision to go to court on this issue. Mm. That, that the really, in, in a well-functioning parliament, this should have been decided in parliament, n- not, not in the court. Not by the... Yeah, the, the judiciary should, shouldn't decide how, how parliament votes. I mean, in a sense, you know, the process that they are to use, because it isn't in the constitution. So, in a sense, it's almost beyond their their um, pay grade. But you know what I mean? Beyond their uh, their their brief mm-hmm. as as a, as a court that interprets the constitution. But the mere fact that that you know um, parties are actually saying that uh, says a lot, because it also says that that parties feel, the opposition parties feel, that there are many parties who will not vote according to what they believe, but according to what they're told mm. uh, in some kind of no-confidence vote. And so that is probably true. And certainly if you look at the way in which the proportional representation system works, um, the members of parliament in many of the parties are answerable only to the party leadership and the party membership indirectly because what happens certainly with a party like the, the ruling party is that they they choose a list from names that are elected by local branches that then goes to the national level which then in a sense sifts through the, the process and in theory eliminates people who have any kind of criminal conviction or any other kind of problem and that, and they ultimately, ultimately, what happens is the leadership of the party decides who, who will be on the list for parliament that gets elected, and that means basically uh, the accountability to the public is reduced by the system because people have only the choice to either vote for that, this party or that party. They can't say, "I'm voting for um, person A of party one." but I'm not voting for person B of party one. They can't do that. And so the result is that, in a sense, the, the whole instability of parliamentarians under that kind of system is heavily weighted towards the leadership of the party. And if the leadership of the party has decided that, you know, that they are not going to allow people to vote against the president, um, which is basically what I suspect has been going on in the past, um, then there is a real sort of pressure that, in a sense, Parliament can't, can't act as, as parliamentarians. And, and ultimately, the whole concept of a, of a vote of no confidence is pointless. Yeah, it, does, it does strike me that those kinds of um, points in, in, in the Constitution only really makes sense if you have a multi-party state where one party doesn't have dominance. Um, but in a state like ours, yeah, it, it doesn't yeah. make sense. I mean... Yeah, you, see, you know, parties aren't bound to any 
any particular formula in how they appoint people to uh, to Parliament. I mean, that all they have to do at the election is put together a list. And whether that list is basically directly elected by, by members of a party, or they are, in a sense, filtered, or they are simply appointed. I mean, those kinds of things. I mean, the central example of, of, of Brian Molesi, when he, when he left ESCOM the first time round, he went straight to Parliament and was made a member of Parliament. He was not elected. He was selected. And, and, and I don't think for a moment one, one could say that he was, you know, elected by members of a local party branch that chose him as their candidate uh, for, for Parliament. So you can see how the, the system works. So in a sense, you can you know shift people around as you wish, and there's a long history of this in the last 20 odd years of um, a party faithful uh, who fall out with whoever's leadership, getting moved out of parliament. You know, the phrase that's used is redeployment, so they get given a job in uh, in, a, in in an embassy somewhere or appointed to sort of the party secretary somewhere in some some party branch or somewhere else. So there's a whole there's a whole sort of lack of direct there's, there's no direct election of, of our members of parliament. I mean this is not the Westminster system of course. But I mean it's, it's been a problem that was raised far back as nineteen ninety nine. Uh the Von Zelflobert Commission. Uh, looked at this question and suggested we shift away from a simple uh, party list system, which really only is used in small countries, um, you know, in numerically small countries, right. not in large countries. And in fact, would be they recommended that they adopt the German system, where where you have half the parliament is party list, and half the party is directly elected by constituency. So that would mean, in a sense, 200 mega constituencies around the country. But at least, in theory, then, you would have at least some members of parliament who are accountable to the voters directly rather than accountable to the party. And, I mean, that is that is the thing that many have, have been arguing for. The Fonzel-Sobert Commission proposed this, and it was, it was accepted by most political parties, except the ruling party. Mm. That does make sense. Yeah. Unfortunately. Okay. Well, that's been very helpful, Anthony. Um, we're, we've got uh, about as much as we have time for, but thank you very much for just helping us think through what's going on in both of those issues, and we'll no doubt chat to you again soon. Indeed. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. Bye.